Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. We're having marriage hour today on Trending, and in part because I'm celebrating today my fifth wedding anniversary. I don't know where the time went, but it went by very quickly. And last week, I was driving in the car listening to the Kale Clark show. And I really enjoyed some advice that Kale was reading on air from couples who had been married 50 years or longer. And I thought, huh, I wonder what couples who have had, you could say, arguably successful or at the very least committed relationships for over 50 years. I wonder what they have to say. And so I started doing digging online. I pulled up some of what Kale had been looking at. And it was neat to sift through some of it. Now, There's always the cheese and the corn and the fluff that is there. But then there are these nuggets that I was finding all over the internet, everywhere from People Magazine to I even, thanks Kale, uh, went to the tweet that he had shared when he was sharing this last week on the show uh, from Sahil Bloom, who shared that he was just celebrating his seventh wedding anniversary, and he compiled a bunch of marital advice from people who had been married 50, 60, 70 years or longer. And I thought that was really neat. Most of the participants responding in this, you could guess if they've been married 50 years, were anywhere from 70 years old to 100. And so these are really neat nuggets of advice that I'm taking to heart and praying and hoping to really work on. And I hope you can benefit from it as well. And if you have your two cents to give, I'd love to hear from you. Go ahead and send me an email, trending at relevantradio.com, or I would love to hear from you on social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. And by the way, please pray for me in my marriage. It means the world to me if in that you are. I love to hear from you when you share some of what's going on in your life or if you have a question and when you tell me you're praying for me because I need your prayers and so does my marriage. So happy anniversary to my husband, Gabriel, two kids later. It's been great, but let's dive into some of this advice. So First that came up was actually from an article I was reading on People Magazine, and this was a couple, Gerard, Gerald and Anne-Marie Burke from Madison, and they've been married over 52 years, and this was their advice together. To be the best spouse you can be, you work on keeping your memory short and your sense of humor strong. It is important to refrain from bitterness and to appreciate the gift of two. Without the other, neither's dreams come true. I thought this was a really good summary as we dive into a lot of nuggets that are shared in bullet points, but I think can be unpacked in this one statement. To be the best spouse you can be, and again, they've been married for over 52 years, they said keep your memory short. And they're not saying, hey, be forgetful, don't savor the good. They're saying let go of the things that fuel bitterness, that fuel resentment and anger. And you don't always have to 
address it. You don't always have to uh, sit in it or complain or let it be something that you bring up at your next argument, but let that memory be short. And my husband is such a great testament to this. There will be moments where there's something that I'm doing that's causing a problem for us, a behavior of mine. I'll say, can you give me an example? Because I love examples. I grew up dancing and in dance, we had a lot of correction. You'd be in the middle of performing a dance and unless you were on the stage, you would get critique. Okay, move your arm, fix your hand, tilt your head, uh, turn out more, uh, your balance is off. There was this constant constructive criticism and I love constructive criticism and I'll often say, like, can you give me an exact example? I've been trained to think this way. And my husband, and it took me a couple years to get this, and I still struggle with it sometimes, say, I don't remember. I'm not harboring this resentment. Frankly, I really can't give you a specific example unless it was the exact moment of the situation we're in. And that was really hard for me because I'd want that critique, that feedback. I'd want to be able to analyze it. And sometimes we can't just always analyze and pick apart something because in this case, my husband wasn't harboring resentment. It was just an overall, uh, maybe he was saying, hey, say thank you. And that wasn't it. But uh, maybe that's something you struggle with of just being grateful in marriage. And well, can you give me an example of not being grateful? And maybe your spouse has a hard time giving you one. That's good. That means they're not harboring bitterness. So I think that's a great nugget from that of have that short memory of the things that are difficult or uh, those arguments that occur. And then their next part to it was, but have a sense of humor that is strong. Be able to laugh at the things that happen. I know right now I sent a text to my family this morning. We have this family group chat. And so my parents, my siblings, and all the in-laws are in on it. And it was a video. I was all excited because after breakfast, I had just slammed through all of the dishes in the sink, gotten the dishes put away, the kitchen was completely clean, and man, the girls are being so good, because I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I look over to my left as I'm turning away from the sink to dry my hands, and there is utter and complete chaos just a foot away from my foot. They had opened up about four cupboards and maybe two or three drawers, and not to mention everything that had already happened in the living room that I didn't see, and I just started cracking up. It was hilarious. I was so excited about the stack of dishes. So I started my video with the dishes. Look, I just got all of this done. And it was so silent. And I must have really been in the zone because I completely missed this that was literally a foot away from me. And I bring this up because it was a reminder, I need to just laugh at those things. And yesterday was a hard day. Uh, in days that where things like that happen, just laughing, they're doing exactly what they should be doing. In that sense of humor, I think not just with your kids, but with your spouse is key. But I, what something I need to learn is to laugh at myself. Uh, I am better at laughing at the silly things that happen with my kids. And even sometimes those male-female differences uh, that can occur that should be appreciated and laughed at. There's so many differences between men and women, but I need to learn to laugh at myself to get myself to let go of things, to appreciate, as this couple said, to appreciate the two of you. Because when you don't have both, you don't have either person's dreams uh, moving forward. So diving into more of this advice from couples who have been married 50 years and longer. And I want to run through some of this quickly because there was a lot between some of the articles I was reading. One of them was tell your partner you love them every night before falling asleep. I love this. This is a must. Even when it's difficult sometimes, I one-up it a little bit here and I try to make sure I always kiss my husband goodnight or vice versa. And even if I'm laying in bed, 
I cannot go to sleep until I actually push myself past whatever frustration that might be and just go over and just give him a kiss on the cheek, say I love you and lay back down, even if maybe he's sleeping at that point. But that there's this settling in my heart toward him, letting go of whatever is going on. And the next one from couples who have been married 50 years or longer is never stop dating. Couple said, I'm 99 and still courting my wife. Marriages don't get boring. You stop trying. Um, So don't stop trying. When you stop trying, that's when things get boring. That's when you grow apart. And I love that. Don't stop dating. This is something my husband and I are really trying to work on is getting that quote, weekly date night in. And even if it's now that we've been working on getting the kids sleep under control, uh, now it might not be that we necessarily go out, but that we plan something special that night of the week if we didn't go somewhere because it's just the two of us. So I'm trying to really appreciate that more. And it's so important. I understand it more and more every time I actually do go out alone with my husband. Another is do not act, do one act of service for your partner every day but never tell them about it. I thought this one was kind of silly when I first heard Kale talking about it the other day on the show. And this is why I thought it was silly. Well, there are so many acts of service that I do for my husband every single day that isn't discussed. I mean, whether it's folding the laundry, putting his laundry away, making this thing and many and all the more so things for him. But I think that the takeaway from this is to not say, well, I'm doing all these acts of service already that are perhaps even being unthanked or unacknowledged, but that I can do one more thing, that one more thing that could ease my spouse's day, that could be a push of sacrifice on my part to love them just a little bit more, even if it's something I don't like. Another is time doesn't heal when it comes to relationships. Don't delay difficult conversations. I actually kind of disagreed with this one. And I think because of male versus female differences, I think a man totally had to have given this piece of advice. Time doesn't heal when it comes to relationships. Don't delay difficult conversations. I think that at least maybe it's just me, but I try to I tend to jump into difficult conversations with my husband too quickly rather than just giving maybe some time for the dust, my dust to settle, or just uh, some space from the upset attitude versus I do notice a lot of men, hey, if it's not an issue, we're not going to address it sometimes. And it's easier like, hey, if it's not right in my face, it can be out of sight, out of mind. And women tend to harbor things negatively. So I think this is maybe, maybe you disagree with me, but I think this is better advice for men um, and not as good for women and that sometimes women just need to slow down, give it some air, but not to throw it out completely. If it needs to be addressed, address it. But I think at the end of the day, the key is don't avoid difficult conversations. Like go into them. But I think the Catholic take on this is with humility, with charity, and sometimes just be willing to let things go. You don't have to go into every difficult thing. I think uh, we have a lot of licensed marriage and family therapists that come here on the show, and I can't remember the percentage, but it's high. I think it's over 70% that well over 70%, maybe even more uh, of conflicts between spouses are never actually resolved, which means that really obnoxious sticker that you see on cars today, quote, coexists stickers. It's a little bit of what does happen in marriage. But you're coexisting out of love, not just out of tolerance, but out of love. And isn't that the key that there's sacrifice, that the annoying habits, uh, the annoying differences, the differences of opinion, that the other person can still be other, 
We have this teaching in the church from Genesis, the dawn of creation, that the two become one flesh. It's not just in physical unity, but in mind, body, and soul, that there's this oneness that is meant to occur, but that doesn't mean there isn't still individuality. Which I'm going to jump down to one of the other pieces of advice that I thought was really good. And this is where I left off when I was listening to Kale's show a couple weeks ago. And it said, maintain interests and passions separate from your partners. Marriage should not be the end of individuality. And I thought this was great. And what's interesting is that I've noticed my husband and I have really grown to love and appreciate each other's passions and interests. And so I was thinking, thinking well, okay, there's a lot that we do now that we both mutually love. Uh, I'm sometimes bitter because he can't before we got married, but I take credit, really, I do, for him loving camping and hiking even more than before. Uh, And so anytime he's like hiking with the guys, I'm like, oh, but I want to go. It's something I love. I'm a total outdoors girl. But it's so important that he's able to do those things, even if I enjoy them, or even if they're things that I don't enjoy without me. So I thought that was important. And for me, it was a good reminder to cultivate those things, especially not just as a wife, but as a mother that can easily be pushed by the wayside as life gets busy. Cultivate still those things that you're interested in and passionate about, because it will give you energy in your marriage. It'll give you energy in life. Another great one was to never raise your voice with your partner. Isn't that a good reminder? And it's difficult and we are so flawed. And I'm sure most of us could probably work on that. Another one that I thought was really great is don't fear sadness as it tends to sit right next to love. This reminds me of C.S. Lewis. Uh, His comment in his writings with this idea of men without chests or men without hearts. And the idea is, is that if we become human beings who do not love because we are afraid of it, that we pack up, as he discusses, our hearts in a coffin protected so that nothing can harm it because we don't want to become hurt, well, then we can never actually love. And so the idea in the statement, don't fear sadness as it tends to sit right next to love, is that there is sorrow and it'll happen. It's an emotion. It's fleeting. It comes and goes. Allow it to be there, even when not just circumstances bombard you as a couple, but even when your spouse hurts you and makes you sad. That love sits right next to that sadness and that sadness is fleeting. It's a good reminder, I think, to help in working through emotions that can be experienced in marriage as they can be volatile. They can be numb at times. Another one we all need a reminder. No one has ever argued their way to a happy marriage. This is advice from people who have been married 50 years and older, people ranging from their 70s into about 100. I think that's, again, a simple but needed reminder. No one has ever argued their way to a happy marriage. And this is where that sense of humor comes in, being able to laugh some things off, being able to dust it off a little bit and go, okay, that's fine. Another one was it It can't always be 50-50. Sometimes it will be 90-10. Sometimes it will be 10-90. All that matters is that it adds up to 100. I know it may sound cheesy and cliche, but it's legitimate. If you're a quid quid pro quo type of person, I do that, you do this. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I do the dishes, you do the laundry. If we always measure and take stock in marriage, there's a problem. 
And it can happen. It can happen to the best of us. It can happen as a mode of operation in marriage. It can happen on a given evening. And I I know I can be guilty of that. I'll be like, okay, well, you've got to do all the dishes because I've got six loads of laundry to fold. And I'm not meaning it as in a like, I shouldn't mean it as in a you do that, I do this. But it's a matter of like all just working to make everything cohesively still work. So tons of marriage advice coming from people who have been married quite a long time. And I think there's much to be appreciated in this. A couple more. Every relationship is a work in progress. The mutual desire for improvement is what builds a lifelong bond. I think that's great. We need to have that desire for improvement. And that's good to see in our marriages. And the question is, do I have it? And if not, why? If I do not have that. And then finally, I'll just leave off on this one because there's so many pieces of advice. But I think this one is significant. I hate the culture of self-care and me time. But there is legitimacy to the statement I'm about to give from people who've been married over 50 years. You cannot take care of your partner if you aren't taking care of yourself. You cannot take care of your spouse if you aren't taking care of yourself. And isn't that key? It's not saying, hey, let me go engage in me time. It's that you need to take care of your health. You need to eat. Right. You need to exercise. You need to get outside. Uh, You do need to cultivate some of your interests. And if you are, and if you're just becoming this person that is disembodied, we're we're embodied human beings. God gave us a body to care for, uh, interests and gifts to cultivate. And with cultivating our body and being good stewards of those gifts, talents, and body, we're better able to love and serve others, which ultimately, if I were to look at one thing, what did Jesus Christ say? He says, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that's what I want to come back discussing here in a little bit. What does that mean in marriage when we hear those words, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom to many? Because these are words I have to remind myself of often because I struggle in marriage. So it's a marriage hour today on Trending. We're celebrating my fifth anniversary. Thank you for praying for me. Please do if you're not already for my husband, Gabriel, and I. But we'll be back in just a moment to unpack what our Lord said and how it's relevant to marriage. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Jesus told us that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I find myself often repeating this passage throughout the day and I've been in a season probably the last month or so that I've not been and I'm reminded of how important it is that we memorize sacred scripture because it is such an aid and reminding me to be on the right path of what my responsibilities are, what my conduct should look like, to think as God thinks. And there's no greater punch in the gut than I really do believe this passage. We read about it 
directly in Matthew chapter 20, John chapter 13, and Mark 10. John 13 doesn't actually say these words, but actually gives us the example in practice at the Last Supper. And I'll get to that in a moment. But these are the words, Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'll find myself throughout the day in those moments where maybe I just want to throw in the towel, <laughs> just rest when I have things I need to do, maybe I want to complain, which I'm terrible about lately, especially to my husband, um, that you need to remind yourself, I need to remind myself that Jesus Christ set the example and he literally told us, I didn't come to be served. Don't just focus on laying out this golden platter for me. But I came to serve. And that's the perspective we should have in our lives, in our friendships, in our families, in marriage. Mentioned earlier today, I'm celebrating my fifth wedding anniversary with my husband. And this is, I think, the passage that I need to continue to say to myself and ponder and think about. And I was thinking about it in a different way this morning as I cracked open scripture and was just reading it in context. And I often repeat just part of that passage. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What's the second half of that? And to give his life as a ransom for many. And I had a, oh, really, moment when I thought, as a ransom for many? You hear a lot about ransomware these days. Uh, Maybe if you follow the news or read mysteries, you hear about the ransom being requested uh, for payment taken by another for often a person. Or in this case, holding people's companies in in flux, holding money in flux, and so many things happening when we hear the word ransom. But isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ told us that we, you and me, are meant to be the ransom. We can't just throw money at things. We can't just throw things. We have to throw our whole self into this idea of service. And Jesus gives us an example. I want to come back to that word ransom in a moment. But we have this passage in Matthew 20 and Mark 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But then if you actually go and read the Last Supper narrative from John chapter 13, you see this in practice. Jesus at the Last Supper, at the beginning of the Last Supper, makes a statement where he says, that the Son of God loved them to the end. In other words, he's loved his friends. He's loved the apostles. He's loved us human beings to the end. In other words, Jesus Christ follows through all the way to the end as the one who is ransomed. He doesn't quit along the way. He doesn't throw in the towel. He doesn't say, I'm too tired. He loved them to the end perfectly and sacrificially. There were even times we read in the gospel, when the crowds are overwhelming, the apostles are coming at Jesus. They want to hear more. They want to learn more. And maybe they want more free bread and food because they're hungry. But really, maybe they want food for the soul, which is the ultimate food we need most. And this is why this passage, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, is excellent food for the soul. It's a reminder that if we want to find purpose, meaning, hope, joy, peace, tranquility, all of those things, we need to serve. 
And that it's the very antithesis of what our fallen human nature believes. That I'll be most happy if I'm comfortable. If I'll be most happy if I can just take that vacation. If I could just get that much more sleep. If I could just lay down and veg out and watch that show. But no, all of these things are getting in the way. I would be happy if I could just follow my dreams, have that perfect job. We think that comfort is the meaning of life, that pleasure is the meaning of life. Now, pleasure is a great thing, but if you read about the virtues, which we dove into starting this week, talking a little bit about temperance and prudence, temperance helps us in moderating and delaying pleasure because we're not meant to just be absolute hedonistic individuals no matter what we might experience or see in the culture or see in your upbringing or see in the family dynamic that you have engaged in. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We see this, as I mentioned, lived out in the Last Supper when Jesus says he loved them to the end. And after he says that, He's giving them the example. He's showing them. And he's also looking around at the apostles saying, here, let me not just show you, but I'll tell you in case you're missing it. And I'm going to, in this case, tell you first that I've loved you to the end. That's what the son of man, the son of God has done. And now I'm going to wash your feet. And just for context, you've probably heard it done dozens of times before. At the time of Jesus Christ, they didn't have super sanitary feet or they didn't even have stinky feet that had been in socks and shoes all day. A lot of them walked around barefoot or in sandals with feet that were exposed. Your feet were very dirty. Remember, there were no cars, automobiles. The main means of transportation was by foot or if you were wealthy enough, by animal. And animals have a lot of refuse and it's dirty and you're walking in dried muck. And so here Jesus is getting down on his knees, tucking in his clothes, pulling up his sleeves and washing the feet of his apostles. This was a custom at that time that when you go to someone's house, they'd offer you the opportunity to clean yourself before a meal, not just your hands, but more so your feet probably even from the stench that might be hanging out on your feet when you really think about it. And after he cleans their feet or during that time, he says, do not call, do you not call me Lord and teacher? He asks his apostles, do you call me Lord and teacher? Well, then he goes on to say, if you call me Lord and teacher, which clearly he's showing that they think of him as a type of authority over them. Well, Look at what I'm doing as your Lord and teacher. He says, if I've washed your feet, you then should wash each other's feet. And he said, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus just gave us the example of what it means to serve, to serve one another, to see that no matter your place of authority, leadership, no matter your role in the family, your role in business, your role in your community, that you're called to serve. And so it brings me back to that word that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean to be held ransom for someone else? This is why we have the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be ransomed. You are the payment taken by another, in this case, 
for the souls of others as Jesus Christ gave himself for the souls of each and every single one of us. In many respects, if you think of the word ransom, you think of the word hostage. You're being held hostage for others. Jesus was held hostage. He was given as a ransom, but he gave himself. He offered himself as the hostage, as the sacrifice, the bloody sacrifice. That's kind of startling when you begin to think about it, when you think about it in relationship to the actual relationships you have in your life. Whether it's working relationships, marital relationships, parent-child, child-parent relationships, that that's what we're called to do, that's difficult. I am weak when it comes to this. I can think of so many times when I remember, especially in college, I was so busy with school and I was working and it was hard to just get through the day. And I was also struggling severely at that season with my autoimmune disease as well. And they were at some of their worst. And I remember there would be times where I'd be stuck in a conversation and I would, you know, enjoy visiting, talking. But sometimes, you know, in those moments when you're just stuck talking to someone and you can't get out of the conversation, you're practically like a bowing as you back out of the conversation or maybe even try to back out of the room because you really have hopefully a good reason that you need to step out, not just a reason that you don't want to be in the conversation. I think of moments like that And I think of this passage that I'm here to serve, I'm here to love, and not that we should be a doormat run all over, although you look at Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ showed that he was bloody bruised and beaten for our sake so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And yet we sin over and over again, putting him on that cross, leading to the bleeding, the sweating, the tears and the pain that was endured. It's startling when you think how sacrificial And how far we really have to go in our relationships, even with strangers, choosing to be polite and engage and maybe even give someone a little bit of a human connection when you're at the store or on the phone with customer service, rather than making it all about yourself, your demands and getting what you want done as rapidly as possibly with the least discomfort to yourself. Whether it be putting down your phone and actually looking people in the face and asking how their day is and not just allowing for them to say, oh, good, and think that you're just saying it to be polite, but that you actually care. And you start to dig. You start to push a little harder to show, hey, I actually am trying to engage in a conversation with you. How often do you say, oh, hi, how are you? And the other person says, hi, I'm good. How are you? And you say good. Or maybe you don't even say how you are. And you really don't engage with that. What's just become a salutation in passing. That takes time. (laughs) That takes sacrifice. And so the question is, how can I freely give myself as Christ did to the point where I'm willing to become the ransom for others as he himself did? He gave himself as a gift. He allowed us in some respect to have ownership over him. I mean, literally, when you think about the guards who crucified him, those who put a crown of thorns into his skull, pressing it through his skull, penetrating different parts of the body. Did it penetrate the brain? What did it penetrate? And he gave himself in service there. Are we captivated enough by Christ that we are willing to remain with him in the sacrifice he's calling us to enter into? Because he tells us that the burden and yoke are light. In other words, the yoke is put on to two animals side by side, two oxen side by side to pull. And That means that we're one and Christ is the other, that we're not alone. And that's why this burden is light only if we enter into it with him. 
Are we captivated by Christ enough that we remain with him? Think of those words, remain. Jesus asks Peter, James, and John not long after the Last Supper, just hours, even minutes later, to remain with him a little while in the Garden of Gethsemane while he goes and prays. And he just asks them to keep watch, to be vigilant. And he comes back to check on them. They've fallen asleep. They fall asleep over and over again. They can't just keep their eyes open. They've lost their sense of service. And they're trying. They're there with him. But they're allowing for their own comfort to settle in. Maybe they're just tired and it's hard to stay awake. Maybe it's difficult for them to be in the garden because they're afraid too. Jesus is telling them to keep watch. Judas is about to betray him. Do they know? Or maybe it's just something undesirable. They don't want to be awake. They don't want to be with Christ. Or maybe if they're so tired, it's seemingly impossible for them to stay awake. Yet Jesus asks them, can you just remain? Can't you just stay awake a little while? He's giving himself as an utter and complete gift, being held ransom for us. And so this is where the rubber meets the road, where our faith is is meant to be put into the very thought and modality of our life so that it enters into the actions and relationships in which we engage with others, in which we serve others. This points the importance of remembering sacred scripture. In those moments of trial throughout the day, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve as to give his life as a ransom for many. And then set your eyes fixing yourself on that cross with Christ. I think of Venerable Fulton Sheen when he says that many people don't stay on the cross that they have. Imagine if Jesus Christ came off of the cross after one hour, after one hour and 30 minutes, halfway through, after two hours and 55 minutes, just five minutes short of the three hours that he would hang on the cross. Can't we endure the crosses that we have? Yet we're walking around as half-crucified souls, not just because we're not willing to fully enter into that sacrifice, that suffering we might be called to, but because we then often walk around as crucified martyrs, as if we're suffering for every little inconvenience, and yes, outright horrible struggle at times we might be going through. This is the importance of memorizing scripture, of seeing the value and sacrifice united to Christ on the cross. St. Edith Stein, also known as St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, that's the name she took when she became a Carmelite sister. She died during World War II in Auschwitz. And something I love about her work is she talks about the, quote, science of the cross. And that science of the cross that she speaks of is that that is the meaning of our lives. That is the way to happiness, fulfillment. That is the way to discover. She wrote immensely about the female-male vocations, in particular men, what it looks like to be a man. What is a woman? And the science of the cross is at the heart of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man, but each uniquely yours as female, as the one who has the gifts, talents, the particular crosses, and the particular joys in your particular life. And we're called to enter into that and embrace it and run with Christ and the great journey and gift of life that he's offered us as a means to enter, God willing, into his kingdom one day. 
So those are my thoughts on, I think, one of the greatest passages of sacred scripture that can be a modality for us in how we live our lives, how we transform our thoughts from bitterness, complaining, resentment, exhaustion, or even sorrow into union with Christ and service, but ultimately love for others. And if you're struggling to do that, which I struggle to do so, I struggle to do so with my kids, I struggle to do so with my husband, with all my family members, with, with my peers, with uh, people I engage with when I'm at the grocery store, people I don't engage with. How do you do it? It's, again, that age-old Christian adage that we see Christ in others. That we truly say, that's Jesus Christ. I remember going to confession a few months ago and Father told me in the confessional that I needed, when I struggled to do things, perhaps for my husband or to have that right perspective with regard to my husband, to see Christ in him. Like literally, he said, Timory, see Christ in your husband. And if you can't do it for your husband, if you can't love your husband at that time, love Christ. And that will transform the way you engage with him. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. I'll be right back here on Trending. Our toll-free line is 888-914-9149. And it's sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Happy Feast Day of the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and also referred to as, more recently, the Presentation of Our Lord Jesus Christ in the Temple. I'll share with you a little bit about that in just a moment, and take a tough question about natural family planning and when you should and shouldn't use it. But first, Lent is around the corner, and I want to encourage you to make your Lenten journey with your parish this year with Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass, sponsored in part by the National Center for Padre Pio. These free daily videos are bite-sized explorations of prayer and postures that will transform your perspective on the Mass and re-energize your parish community. Pray, fast, serve these 40 days with 40 lessons and with Father Rocky's weekly Eucharistic Encounter videos. Sign up and share with your family at relevantradio.com slash Lent. It's a feast the presentation of our Lord Jesus Christ, also referred historically to as the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And it's a special day. It's the day that we know that story in sacred scripture where Our Lady, 40 days after having had the baby, Jesus, she goes to the temple with our Lord and with St. Joseph, and they make an offering, offering the poor of two turtle doves in gratitude for their child. And it's also an offering for her. It's a cleansing ritual, which we could get into on another day. Uh, but I've always loved this day for many reasons. I thought the story of Simeon and Anna, the prophetess who's there waiting in the temple, Simeon all his life that he's been promised by our Lord that he'll see the child Jesus, the Messiah, before his death. And then the prophecy that Simeon makes, what we know as the canticle of Simeon that we pray, if you ever pray a night prayer before bed as part of the liturgy of the hours. Now your servant, now you can let your servant go in peace for your word has been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen the salvation of the world, salvation of the world being Jesus Christ. And I love this feast day. It's actually the day I got married five years ago. It's my wedding anniversary. So please pray for me, pray for the intercession of Our Lady in particular today. 
And it was neat when my children were baptized because my children were baptized in the Maronite, right? My husband is a Maronite Catholic, and they have this tradition that just like Jesus was presented in the temple, the first time the child goes into the church at her baptism, in our case, we baptize our kids right away, um, that we present the child to the the priest at the altar, and he actually takes the child and processes and sings with the baby, this tiny little bundle in his arms, around the altar, bowing at every single side of the altar, presenting the baby to the Lord. And even at one point, he places the baby on the altar as an offering to God. It's very powerful and almost a little startling and overwhelming. It's not something that we do and that we don't go up onto uh, up the steps of the altar. and We don't go up and touch or place things on the altar. And to see your child being offered and placed on the altar as a sacrifice, it's a startling reminder of that kid's not mine. My kid is our Lord's and he gives the gift of children and he can take away the gift of children and he can take your child to serve in many capacities and look at the way that God took our lady's child, Jesus Christ who's also fully man and fully God, to then be the sacrifice that he would be. And so it's definitely a feast day to be reminded of the importance of detachment, but also for me, the importance of presenting ourselves to the temple sacrificially. You know, it's not easy to jump up after 40 days of having had a baby. Some people recover quicker and slower. And to go into the temple and to give herself and to go through those rituals the Jewish people did at that time is pretty remarkable of Our Lady and just the significance of how Our Lady totally gave herself, gave her body uh, to God in service to him. So just a few thoughts on today's feast day. Again, please pray for me and no better way to celebrate any feast day in the church, whether it's your favorite saint, your saint you're named after, an anniversary, than to go to mass. That's something we're doing today as a couple, among other things, celebrating five years. So please pray for us on this day. Uh, Tough questions tend to come in about natural family planning. And at the end of the day, I usually think they're not that difficult. I think the reason why we think questions surrounding NFP, natural family planning, is complicated is because we live in a culture that is very pro-contraception. And people, even people in the church and people wrongly can advise it, think of natural family planning as Catholic birth control. And that's absolutely wrong. Natural family planning is not birth control. And it obviously honors, if you know about natural family planning, the body and the natural recourse to fertile versus infertile times uh, that the couple can use to engage in intimacy. Now, with that being said, there's a lot to NFP. I'm not here for an explanation of NFP today, but to take a question that came through that I thought was really important. And I remember before I got married, it was something that a lot of my peers and I, and even in college, there was a lot of discussion surrounding. And The theology, I think, is there and clear if we really take a moment to ponder. And this question, I thought, hit the nail on the head. Abby wrote in, she said, I'm 22 and recently married. My husband is feeling guilty about having sex while practicing natural family planning because he thinks it's not right to um, save intimacy just for pleasure. And he said, she said, I disagree. What do you think? Okay, this is a great question. It touches on a bigger problem, not the matter of whether or not intimacy is for pleasure, but the picture is you just got married and 
the question is, why are you using natural family planning to avoid having children? I think there's something in your husband's gut reaction that's legitimate here, and there's a bigger picture going on. Natural family planning is a great gift. It can be used to help you achieve having children. Praise the Lord, it helped me in my challenging medical circumstances to have babies. But it can also be used as a sound science to avoid having children. But does that mean we should? Well, if you actually dive into the church's teaching historically on this, it's important that we know it. Now, one of the latest summaries of the perspective on openness to life in children is Pope Paul VI, Pope St. Paul VI, a teaching document, the encyclical Humana Vitae. Every couple should read it and really pray through um, how you approach having children and see the great teaching there. And here's the deal. When you get married, you're meant to enter into marriage freely so that you're coming of your own volition, totally giving yourself, that you'll be faithful, that you believe that marriage is permanent, and that that marriage is fruitful. In other words, that you're open to life. And you say these things, if not in these specific words, but in other words, in the vows that you make to your spouse. And the church's teaching on this has been passed down over the centuries. It's even made up much of marriage, not just within the Catholic Church, but other um, other religions and their viewpoint of marriage, permanence, and it centers around children and family that you have to freely enter into it. Now, one of the trends over the last really 60 years has been, well, I'm going to get married and I'm just going to practice NFP for a couple years, but I'm really being open to life because I'm not damaging my body with contraception. I'm not having abortion, but I don't want to have babies for a couple years. So we're just going to get married and use NFP right away. We got to stop. We got to stop and ponder this for a moment because it is important. Why are we getting married if we are automatically out the gate not open to having children. Abby, I think your husband has his conscience kicking in and that he's recognizing there's this great gift of intimacy. And what a joy that your husband is having this perspective because, again, not being sexist, but there tends to be a little bit more of a uh, a leaning toward men being a little more oriented toward the pleasure side and sometimes missing the gift of children and not valuing it as much as women do. And so this uneasiness is legitimate because if you're entering into marriage with this automatic assumption of using contraception, you're really not entering into marriage automatically open to life. Now, Humana Vitae, if you read the church's document, points to the use, if necessary, for serious reasons that a couple could use and have recourse to natural family planning. In other words, uh, abstaining during certain times of the month when the woman's fertile to avoid having pregnancy for that particular month for a legitimate reason. Now, getting married and not wanting to have kids for two years, a year, however long, isn't legitimate. And I don't know all of your details, but what I do know is I saw many of my peers saying, I don't want kids for two, three, five years, so we're just going to get married and use NFP. That is a contraceptive mindset. And each couple, and Pope St. Paul VI says this in Humana Vitae, at the end of the day, each couple is called to discern and is at the end of the day culpable before God for the choices that we make as to whether or not we are open to life. And I think there's a real problem if we're entering into marriage, not open to life, because the primary end of marriage is the education of children, the procreation education of children, to have babies and educate them. And if we're entering into marriage with this immediate stop of saying, hey, we're not having kids for a while, 
there's something I think concerning there could enter into this idea where intimacy is just for pleasure. Now, what does the church teach about every intimate act? Every time two come together in the conjugal union? Well, it's supposed to have two dimensions. You're supposed to be one unitive, so yes, for the good of the spouses, but two procreative, that you're open to life. And so some try to say, oh, well, we are open to life, even though we're practicing NFP, but we're recoursing to just this time of when we're infertile. Now, if there's serious reason, that's legitimate. But if you are choosing for an unserious reason to continue to engage in intimacy, and those are the only times you do, and from the get-go of your marriage, it's lacking both the procreative dimension, but might I also argue the unitive and that you're not open to what the union itself of marriage is. The union of marriage is oriented toward children. And so we have to be really careful that we're checking our reasons for delaying having children at the beginning of marriage. Now, there could be a legitimate reason. Maybe a couple gets married and there's a very serious medical diagnosis. And there may be reason to potentially discern waiting to have children and using natural family planning. This is where sacred scripture is clear, that encouragement of, I can't remember the citation for the verse, but that when we have many counselors, our plans will be good. They'll be, we should have good counselors. So maybe you need to discern and talk to your priest, talk to wise, faith-filled individuals who have been open to life and also navigated certain circumstances. Uh, But also at the end of the day, we're discerning and praying before God, taking these questions and conversations to confession. And I'll just share a couple of stories with you. I had a dear family member who had for years medical reasons why her physicians told her not to have more children. And she said, well, I'm Catholic. The church doesn't teach and believe in sterilization, so I'm not going to sterilize myself. My husband isn't going to have a vasectomy. And she also believed that there could be use of natural family planning that would be a contraceptive mindset. And so they were careful, and I don't know exactly how they always navigated um, using NFP or not. To my knowledge, I don't think they were a huge avid users of natural family planning, but I'll tell you this. They ended up going on to have three more children later on, years delayed. And I always respected the fact that she knew her body She prayed and discerned with her husband, and she honored the gift of children, honored the gift of her body, and that even through difficult pregnancies for one and others that were easier, she saw the gift of children and the gift of her body, and she was able to discern children within that context, not being fearful of the challenges of having different children, and not being overly concerned with, I think, an over emphasis in the medical community to not have too many children, to not overburden the body. There is the necessity to care for the body, especially for women and especially if you have children, but there's also the importance to not lean into a contraceptive mindset of the 21st century that can be so damaging for the soul and for the marriage. So those are my thoughts on some of these tough NFP questions. Have a great feast day on the feast day of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the presentation of our Lord in the temple.